Okay, here we go. February 26th, uh, 2012, uh, lecture discussion number 58 on the book of Romans, uh, sort of maybe. And I say uh, sort of maybe because I wish to continue last Sunday's preemptive uh, strike before we arrive at the now long-promised James uh, chapter 2 so that we can return to Romans 5, for those of you keeping score on the Internet and at home. And obviously you all remember my intention from last week, and that is to lay the foundation again of substance dualism. So that's where we are today because of recent events and questions that I'm getting in this particular subject. Uh, I'm going to try to put this all down before we move into uh, James chapter 2. Substance dualism are also called Cartesian dualism, and that is uh, probably the uh, uh, most common way it is framed, and that is in contrast to physicalism. So I have the dualists versus the physicalists, sometimes called the material reductionist. Um, in any event, you'll see how those two terms will all fit together. Also called the monist here. Obviously, if I have a dualist, I have a monist. And the monist is somebody that says essentially the same as this, that the human being is simply a physical property, and that physical property uh, all ceases to exist at the time of physical death. Where the dualist says no, that the human being is in fact dualistic, and that uh, the essence of the human uh, survives physical death and is immortal. So that is the that is the philosophical issue that we have today, and I'm going to try to lay that all down again, uh, so that we can move into James two. That's the debate, and as you know, the question is really this: What is the solution to the mind-brain problem? We have something in philosophy and in science, frankly, that is called the mind-brain problem. And so understanding the mind-brain problem is very important to you. It comes about all the time uh, as you go through life. You may not recognize it when it hits you, but being able to explain the mind-brain problem to those around you, your friends and family, I believe is absolutely essential. So uh, how is the mind and the brain to be explained? Uh, Louis' dad, Dr. Mayer, comes occasionally. Hi, Dr. Mayer. I know you listen on the Internet, so wanted to say hello to you. I saw your wife at uh, Fred Meyer the other day. I tried to steal her stuff since she didn't even know. I had all of it. Um, and, I, and we had already paid. We were gone, dear, except for our conscience problem, which, again, is mind-brain, right? But anyway, Dr. Mayer came to me a few years ago, and he said, Listen, you need to begin to lay this foundation down for your church. As a physician, it was, it's one of his hobbies. All physicians understand the mind-brain problem, and they understand how critical it is to the average person to know it as well. So that is what our goal was uh, many years ago, and, uh, and I'm still at it, obviously. And why is that? Because it's extremely difficult. It is considered to be the greatest problem of all of humanity, understanding this. So what explanation then best resolves the issues that are present in the understanding of the human thought process, our human essence? How do we function? Or better yet, better put, I, I would say, how are we designed? And that last uh, question, how are we designed, exposes my bias. It reveals that I have concluded that we are, all humanity is, that we are, I are, you is, me ain't, no, 
But we are all, all of humanity is carefully designed, intricately designed. And again, that, and acknowledging that bias, uh, I begin all of these discussions by bringing you a verse, actually a passage, Psalm 139. So that's where I start this a lot, uh, because I want to prove to you that this question is ancient and is still unresolved, which uh, should immediately bring attention to it. Psalm 139, 14 through 18 should be at the forefront. That is where God, by the way, describes us as an awesome wonder. He describes the human being as an awesome wonder, curiously wrought, is how it should be best be translated. Your Bible may not do it. Mine doesn't do it. I have the New King James, and this is where the Old King James is more accurate. Probably need to reread it now for those who haven't ever heard it before. So let's go Psalm 139, 14 through 18. You don't need to turn it. I will read it to you. I am a professional, highly skilled and trained for such things. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is um, uh, this is the psalmist saying he understands that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. So immediately when you read that, you have to un- get the definitions proper. What does fearfully mean? What does wonderfully mean? Obviously, the writer of the psalm understood that he was made. As opposed to what? A, a, a uh, product of chance over time. Marvelous are your works. In other words, this is the debate again. I have a dualist arguing against a monist, against a physicalist. I have Cartesian or substance dualism back in Psalms 139 in this exact debate, identical to what we are doing today with respect to the mind and the brain problem. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. He is acknowledging that he has a supernatural component called the soul or the mind. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Okay? Now, Again, the New King James, I translated it quickly. It doesn't quite convey the meaning of curiously wrought. It says skillfully constructed sometimes or skillfully wrought. Curiously wrought means embroidered or woven. There is something in us that is embroidered in us. It is knitted in, if you will. There is a, uh, there's a structure an extraordinary woven knitted structure that holds the frame or the bones and the skeleton, the muscle system together. Each person is fearfully and wonderfully made from the deep parts of the earth or the dust. So we are a chemical, if you will. We have elements to us and has a uh, substance that forms and develops over time, if you will. In other words, we begin as, as almost as, how does he put it exactly? And yet your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. So we begin as a substance, 
What is that substance? And it develops. Wonderfully, by the way, as you might know, and I hope you know, what wonderfully means absolute distinctness. It is saying here that we are, humanity is, each human being is absolutely unique. There is no other one like you. You are unique. I am unique. There has never been anyone like me. There will never be anyone like me. There is never anyone like you. And there will never be anyone like you. That is what wonderfully means here in the passage in the Hebrew. Also notice God is described as infinite. His thoughts cannot be numbered. His thoughts are unexplainably vast, unimaginably vast. They're beyond the comprehension of a finite human being. So that is important to the context. Why? Why would his thoughts be unimaginably uh, infinite? What does that have to do with you being distinct? You can answer. He juxtaposed those. Why? What is, the, what is the reason he would put the infinity of God next to your individual, my individual uniqueness? Well, that's true. Image likeness is probably as good a reason as any. But I will submit to you that it makes perfect sense because uh, God has to do what with all of us? He has to have the capability, the capacity to what? To know who we are. We are unique because, one, we are designed to develop into uniqueness. And you know, by the way, you watch all the movies, right? You watch CSI, don't you? You know you're unique. How do they catch you? They catch you based on your uniqueness, don't they? The substance yet unformed. They catch you on the embroidery, don't they? What is the embroidery? What is the knitting of us? What makes us unique? Yes, we have an individual DNA, and they will catch you. Between your DNA and video cameras, your crime life is shortened dramatically. Nothing makes me laugh more than teenagers going into grocery stores trying to shoplift, knowing there are, not knowing there are thousands of cameras on them now. Like they're going to get away with it. Yet they do it. Disguised. That's my favorite part. I will wear a hat that will work. Never mind, I put the hat on in the store. Ooh, yes. I am so smart at 14. (sighs) Okay. He obviously is capable of remembering each individual. He says so. He knows he has such capacity. This is a small part. I say this all the time. When you consider the vastness of infinity, and I draw God's hand all the time, and I don't draw it well, I know, I always put his creation in his hand. This, by the way, is cosmologically correct because of the two nothings. You need to know the definition of the first nothing and the second nothing, right? You have void zero and void one, right? You all remember all of that? So uh, here is the creation in the hand of infinity. You see it there, don't you? That is how big creation is. Our universe is what? Is it infinite? No, it's finite. Now, some will tell you that it's infinite, but it is not infinite. It is a created thing, and therefore it is finite by definition of created thing, and it it fits right there. You can see it. It is a 
exactly how big it is. So he is capable of remembering his entire creation, every aspect of it, and certainly all of us. That is what Psalm 139 is trying to say. You are distinct, there is none like you, and he has an infinite capacity. Isn't that wonderful? Because that means that we are remembered. Now, think about really quickly, if he's remembering every creature, think about the thief on the cross who became a brilliant theologian as he's being tortured to death. If you're going to be a theologian, the best time to be one is when you're being tortured to death. But the thief on the cross wisely and profoundly asked to be something. What did he ask Christ to do for him? Remember me. Profound. How did he do that? How did the thief figure it out? He said, remember me. I want to be in your book. He declared Christ to be the one who had the capacity to remember. The rememberer is the infinite God. He believed Christ to be the creator God himself there. How did he figure that out? He believed, as you know, let me say that again. He believed Christ is the creator God. And by doing so, he's what? He's saved. That's the salvation process. Okay, now let's add Colossians 115.17 to uh, Psalm 139. Again, clearly demonstrating my bias here by doing so. Let me read this, Colossians 1.15 through 18. Talking about Christ. Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. So God is invisible. And Christ is how we see the invisible God. He is the invisible made visible. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Notice a few things. In him all things consist. Let's put that on the board really fast. Get rid of the beautiful drawn hand with all of creation in it and write the word consist. You must have a definition of the word consist, because in Christ all things consist. He holds, what that means is he's holding all things together. And what are we? We are a thing. We are things. He is the power that holds the things together. What do we call, what, you know, we have scientific community today is very, very uh, 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 focused on finding the God particle. What does the God particle do? Scientifically, why are they looking for the God God, God, more medicine? Why are they looking for the God particle? Because they're trying to find the particle that holds everything together. The particle that will, in all things, consist. Jesus Christ is identified in Colossians as the God particle, which makes perfect sense since he is the God. And he is before all things. Here's where it's important to know that time is a thing. Time is a created thing. Time is part of the created order. The created order is matter, space, energy, and time. Jesus Christ made the things and he holds all the things together. That's what Colossians is saying here. 
Along with all the other things, because there's two kinds of things. What's it say in there? What are the two kinds of things? I have visible things, and I have invisible things. What's the obvious question? What is an invisible thing? Better yet, is there a who? Who is an invisible thing? God is an invisible thing. No. That would be false, wouldn't it? Because God is what? Not a thing. God is a person who makes the things and who holds the things. We are things. So there is an invisible thing. What is an invisible thing? Who is an invisible thing? Why are there invisible things? What are all of the things that are in heaven? Are any of them visible? If so, why? Just a few questions that will smack you upside the head in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. But for today, just concentrate. In Him all things consists. He is the creator and the sustainer and the holder togetherer of all things. Is holder togetherer a word? It is now. Think of it as the power source or the power supply, if you wish. Because this discussion of power will eventually reappear here when we get to the law of conservation of energy. Because we have to get to the law of conservation of energy in order to sign, I'm sorry, in order to solve the mind-brain problem. And you're all familiar with the law of conservation of energy, aren't you? So go ahead and get your papers out and give me a paragraph on the law of conservation of energy. Because you all learned it in the eighth grade. Or maybe the sixth grade. All it says is, I'll help you pass today. All it says is the total amount of energy in an isolated system remains constant over time. Energy is neither created nor destroy. 19th century law of conservation of energy. Now, it's gone on to include mass of Einstein's uh, special law, uh, I'm sorry, law, uh, uh, theory of, <laughs> I can barely speak today, his uh, uh, theory of special relativity said there is mass energy. So not only do I have the law of conservation of energy, I have the law of conservation of mass, if you will, or what's called mass energy against time. And I'll explain all of this, because why? In order to prove to you that you are a two-component being, that you are dualistic and not a, a product of just physical properties, there is no monism, you are not monistic, you are dualistic, in order to prove that to you, I have to address the law of conservation of energy and mass energy over time, or the law of conservation of mass energy, and that, of course, is what? Yes, we, more physics. Yes, more physics. You might have noticed we're back into our book of, of Edgar Andrews. Uh, I have introduced it back in without really specifically referring to it, because any discussion of the existence of the soul will confront, as I said, the law of conservation of energy and all the physics that are required therein. And the difference between the control function because I have a control function with regard to energy. I have a control function and I have a power 
function. Does that make sense to you? You're all into computers now. I am not. I use computers for probably one thing. Plain Scrabble. That's about it. I do... What's that? I do read the news. Huh? What else did you think I use it for? YouTube? Every now and then I look up guitar players on YouTube. I do that. I was especially... Uh, I struggle with rhythm. Why? Do I need to explain that? This should be pretty obvious why. I'm old, and, and that's a, so I study rhythm guitar players at the highest possible level I can find them in order to try to duplicate what they do. So I use the computer for that. That's all true. But uh, we have a control function and a power function. I have the control of power versus, so again, back to here. Law of conservation of energy I, it is dividable or divisible into the control aspect of energy and the power aspect of energy. I can think of a transistor, right? You all took transistor theory. How old is this guy? I have an emitter. I have a collector. I have a base, right? I have a control circuit right here. And it's biased correctly. And here, I have a power circuit. It's the same thing. What do you call these today? Operational amplifiers, right? So I have a control circuit right here that's variable that controls the power going through here. So I have control and I have power. Just like a vacuum tube. <laughs> you should see your faces. Uh, that is just so great. Uh, okay. But again, I have control of power, which I would call information. What I'm saying to you is does an information... Is information transfer that controls power in conflict with the law of conservation of energy? That is where this discussion is going. In order to prove to you what? That you have an immortal soul. That's how it all works. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. Anything that, that's easy is worthless to you. Okay, last week I made a couple of pretty bold statements for a one-eyed fat man. It's one of my... One of my favorite lines in all of movies, along with now, don't be looking for Quincy. Anybody see that? I love don't be looking for Quincy. That was a great line. Uh, along with ain't nothing free but the grace of God. So, so there's three great lines in one Western, which uh, fits my, my uh, prerequisite for being a perfect movie. Anyway, last week I made a couple of bold statements. One of them is I recited Chronister's second law. Do you remember Chronister's second law? Do you remember Chronister's first law? I have lots of laws, but the first law, of course, says that a physical component cannot be derived from a... uh, I'm sorry, a non-physical component cannot be created or derived from a physical component. That's called the law of counter-emergentism. But the uh, second law was essentially this... Without the continuity of the soul, there is no resurrection. Let me repeat that. Without the continuity of the soul, there is no resurrection. So what I'm saying by that is that if the soul does not survive death, 
there can be no resurrection. That seems to be pretty obvious, but it isn't to most people. Some people have the soul. They recognize that there's a dual component to every human, but they think the soul will die a physical death. And I'm saying to you that if the soul dies a physical death, there is no resurrection. The only way there's any hope of resurrection is if there's continuity of the soul. That is called Chronister's second law. Human existence, then, can only be explained. Let me say this again. Human existence, your existence, my existence, can only be explained, only be described as consisting of two distinct interacting substances. Hence, substance dualism. Two distinct interacting substances. The substances are different. A physical substance and a non-physical substance. In other words, the mind is a non-physical substance. The body is a physical substance. They are different substances. Or if you wish, physical properties and mental properties. We are broken into two groups. We have mental properties. And mental properties are not physical properties. And we have physical properties and they are not mental properties. That should be obvious, right? Give me an example of a mental property. What's that? Emotions. Give me an emotion. Be more specific. Anger. How much does anger weigh? <laughs> well, hey, I, I have a non-physical property that clearly has a, has a physical uh, impact, don't I? So I have something that weighs nothing, takes no space, has no volume, and yet it has a physical impact. It is not a physical substance, it is a mental property, and I have a physical property. Yes, sir, in the front row with the beautiful green shirt. You look so familiar to me. Oh, you raised your hand. Yes. You're not. <laughs> never, never would I do that. I thought you did. Oh, okay, maybe you put your glasses. Oh, you put your glasses on your head. Yes, you in the front row. How much do you bid on this? Never mind. Okay. <laughs> Mental properties are not the same as physical properties. They have different substances. It's very important to know that. Put it another way, perhaps more definitively. Only the significant cooperation and interaction between a metaphysical mind and the physical brain or the body. Do not think that the brain is the mind. It is not. The brain is a physical device. You can take it out and look at it. You cannot take the mind out and look at it. Only the significant cooperation and interaction between a metaphysical mind and the physical brain body will explain the human experience. Let me say it again. Only. Only the cooperation and interaction between the mind and the physical body will explain the human experience. No other explanation is possible, is plausible. None. Now, there's implications to what I just said there. There are considerable implications. And we shall investigate them along with the physicalist's position. The physicalist uh, doesn't give up just because I'm right. He will fight me, as futile as it is. But we'll, and we'll investigate his positions over the next couple of weeks, uh, which frankly are agenda-driven, by the way. The physicalist has an agenda. But what I mean by that is they wish for anything to be true other than dualism.
They do not want there to be a mental property and a physical property that are different substances. They do not want the mental properties to be a supernatural substance and the physical property to be a physical uh, substance. They do not want that because if that's true, that brings accountability because you have to ask the obvious question. What is the origin of the mental property? How do I make a mind? What do I make it out of? What is the substance that I make it out of? Where do I get the substance? Can the substance of a mental property, can the substance of the mind evolve? No. It's non-physical. And by its very existence, it destroys the philosophy of evolution. Evolution is a philosophy. It is a monist philosophy in the sense that it is says that we are, are only one substance, and that substance, when it dies, it ceases to exist. Monistic philosophy, as you all know. I repeat that for who? The Internet audience, that's right. That's why we do it, because they come along and they cherry-pick out uh, sermons, or lectures, actually, and they don't get them all in a row. And I also do it, why? Because we have so many people who come and go here. So, please be kind to the ones who don't attend regularly. Now, where am I? The physicalist is agenda-driven because if he concedes that I have a substance that is unique, that there is no origin explanation for, and it is of a substance that I cannot reproduce, it is a supernatural substance, then it can only have one origin, and that origin has to also be supernatural, and then that will seed all kinds of things. The one thing it will, it will, it will seed is a design capability of someone. Someone had to design a supernatural substance. It cannot, it, it cannot be described or determined any other way. If I have a design, then I have a designer. If I have a designer, then I have a creator. If I have a creator, what might he want? He might want to know what I'm doing. And if he wants to know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, then I have accountability. Dualism brings accountability. And if there's anything the physicalist or the monist hates, it's accountability. And mankind hates, as you know, and loathes and curses anyone or anything that testifies of what? Judgment. Accountability is just a really nice way of saying judgment. That is why... The hatred for the dualistic position from the scientific community. The physicalist would rather descend into irrational madness than admit the existence of invisible things. But I digress. So, we're going to put a few things on the most holy, reversible, platinum model dry erase board now. And what are they going to be like? going to be terminology. And this is my meager attempt to do justice to this mystery called the mind-brain problem. This is a gleaning, repeat, repeat process, what you're going to go through now. What I mean by that is it requires going through the material, gathering whatever you can, put it in your bucket, and then returning to the beginning and go back through the field and Gather again, restarting the operation, gathering again, 
this time as many items that you can that are different from the previous time and then repeating that. You'll find the gleaning repeat, repeat to be the, be most, the common, the only way I know of to get this done. This is the pursuit of the complex. So gleaning, repeat, repeat. So let's familiarize ourselves with the basic terminology so that then we can do what? Repeat it. And then once we've repeated it, what do we do then? Repeat it again. Won't that be fun? This is my favorite part. Okay, here we go. Intentionality. Say it all with me. Intentionality. Wow, look at you say it all with me. That was kind of a joke. Um, It refers to the fact that mental events are always about something. Or what's also called a technical term. Are you ready? Aboutness. (laughs) You, You laugh, but it actually is. There's intentionality or aboutness. The mind is receiving data. Where does the mind get its data from? The mind, your mind right now is receiving data. Where does it get it from? Where is it getting the data? Yes, how are, how are you receiving the data? You have a data recepting system. What is it called? Hmm? Senses, yes. You're getting your mind, your mind is receiving data from your senses and the mind then directs its attention to something or what I like to call the something. The something. So there's intentionality or aboutness. As the mind begins to get this information, it knows that this is about something. Got that? Welcome to philosophy class. Intelligibility. So I have intentionality, and now I have intelligibility. Good for me. It's not easy to spell. Did I leave out an L? Yes, I did. Intelligibility. The mind receives the data, knows it's about something. See, do you see the Coke can? Isn't it beautiful? My mind sees the Coke can, and I know that the Coke can is beautiful. And I know the contents of the Coke can is It's incredible. Okay, I know that. How do I know that? Well, I just know things. How do I know things? Intelligibility. The mind directs its data. It it receives the data and then it directs its intention, the intentionality, upon the something. And then intelligibility is utilized. Let me repeat that for you. The mind directs its intentionality upon the something, and then intelligibility is utilized. Decisions are made immediately as to what the data represents. For example, your senses see a dog, or a box, or water, or a Coke can, or me, or any a chair. Previous experience is utilized then. And, and meaning is assigned. Meaning. You get information and you're able to determine meaning. Intelligibility is the presence of meaning or understanding. 
Now, you take all of this for granted, and it just happens to you. I'm sorry, my writing's not as perfect as usual. <laughs> you just think, if this happens, you just do it, don't you? You see something, and you recognize it from previous experience, and you identify it, and you give it meaning. How does that happen? What is the process of that? Now, here's probably the most important. Irreducibility. If I touch an object, my Coke can, the pressure comes from where? I have, I have fingertips, if you will, or if I were to bump up against it with my arm, I have, I have what? See, let me ask you this question really fast. I'll, I'll digress here a little bit and run off. I feel things. And I see things. Okay? Where do I feel things? I feel them in my mind. And I see them in my mind. I can prove that you see them in your mind by just telling you to close your eyes and look at them. You have the ability to see them in your mind. Your eyes are just simply what? Data receptors, right? That transfers data into your brain and then your mind interprets the data. That's what's happening. Same thing for physical touch. If they're identical, you'll have to think of it. But I have nerve endings in my fingers, right? And those nerve endings do what? They're affected by the contact with this little pedestal. Okay? They're affected by the com contact. And then what do they do? They transmit electrical impulses to where? To the brain, the physical brain. And then the, where, what kind of action then occurs when those impulses hit the brain? Physical action occurs, right? Chemical, electrical, cellular action occurs. We can see that action now. We have imaging equipment that allow us to see that action, right? So touch causes an action, a physical action in the physical brain. So ask the obvious question now. What's the obvious question? How does this physical process that's going on in the brain become understanding? How does this physical process become meaning? How am I able to touch something and go, oh, that's a Coke can? How do I know it's a Coke can? How is it that my mind can interpret a physical response in my brain and interpret it to have understanding and meaning? Where does understanding and meaning come from? I got to know. Why do I have to know? Because I got to figure out how I'm made. Why do I have to figure out why I'm made? How I'm made? I'll explain that in a minute. It's more obvious questions. How does my mind take a physical process and get morality out of it or goodness? What do I mean by that? Somebody brings me a Coke, a Diet Coke, a beautiful, lovely, perfect Diet Coke, and they put it right there for me. How does my mind interpret that? As goodness, that's right. As, as altruism, better, um, somebody runs into a burning building and grabs a child and you see that action and that action goes through your eyes and goes into your mind, I'm sorry, into your brain, has a chemical, a cellular, chemical, electrical response and your mind is able somehow to take that and understand it to be what? 
good. How do I explain altruism? How do I convert a physical process into goodness? How do I, how do I interpret a physical, I'm sorry, uh, uh, how does goodness come from touch or hearing or seeing? Explain to me how I get joy out of a physical response. What am I doing? I am attacking physicalism, aren't I? Because can I reduce a physical response uh, to a physical uh, let me re- re- rephrase that a little bit. Can I take goodness or joy or peace and reduce it to a physical response? This is called irreducibility. Let me go over just a little bit more for you because I'm looking at your faces. How can I have love, meaning of love, or comfort? How can love result from a physical, chemical, electrical process. How about sense of humor? How do I get laughter or humor or sadness out of a physical reaction or a chemical reaction? See, what is in the center of human existence? Meaning and understanding is in the center of... If you have no meaning or understanding, your existence is, is significantly affected. Without meaning, there can, it can be said there is no human existence. The level of meaning can change this, but there must be meaning. There must be understanding. Intelligibility cannot be reduced to physicalism. It cannot be. It cannot, meaning can't be reduced to particles, to atoms, to molecules, to electrons. Intelligibility is irreducible. Does that make sense? Irreducible manifestations of understanding. Okay? D, subjectivity. What's that mean? By the way, do I expect you to have the understanding of these four very difficult philosophical principles today? No. The answer is no. How did you interpret yes to be funny? We all instinctively knew that it was funny. It was just merely a chemical reaction in your brain. You heard, your receptors heard yes, and you knew immediately it was funny. How did you know it was funny? How were you able to interpret a physical response and get meaning from it? That's just a bunch of chemicals making chemical responses or irreducibility. I cannot... Meaning is irreducible to a physical process. That's very important to know that. Because why? Because it proves that there's something in in you that is not physical. And if it's not physical, what is it? It's supernatural. If it's supernatural, where did it come from? How did it get there? Does it survive physical death? If it's not physical... Will physical death affect it? See how it all goes? I hope you do. Subjectivity. What's called self-consciousness. This is very difficult. And by the way, as I I started to say before, uh, Misty said something funny. Like, yes. Yes was very funny. (laughs) I don't expect you to get this today. So what's that mean? That's right. And here it comes again next week. Until when? 
until you can converse in it as easy as you can converse in anything else. Why? Because there are people out there that are starving to know. Why am I doing it before we go into James 2? I told you last week I had a man down the street whose wife, by the way, died. So he didn't make it one day past when I talked to you, I don't think. Oh, maybe three or four days, I think. Died on Thursday or Wednesday night. And now what's he confronting? What's all her family confronting? Did she cease to exist? And the answer is obvious. What is the answer? No. How do I know that? Because I understand intentionality, intelligibility, irreducibility, and subjectivity. And if he knocked on my door, that's where we would start. We would start with those four. Okay, subjectivity is self-consciousness, if you will. Watch the time. People say, would you please watch the time? And I do. I watch the time. Does it affect anything that I do? Does it shorten the sermon in any way? No, but I do watch it. So those of you who are worried about whether or not I watch it, I definitely watch it. Subjectivity is self-consciousness. Not only is our mind aware of meaning, but our mind is aware of what else? Our mind, your mind is aware of meaning. Your mind has understanding. How much understanding is a great debate. I'm doing my best. But your mind has understanding and your mind is aware of meaning. What else is it aware of? I'm going to help you. A 15-year-old, just to be kind to Seth for a change, a 15-year-old is aware of one thing all the time only. What is it the 15-year-old is aware of? Don't say what you're thinking. 15-year-old is aware of himself. Okay? Fifteen-year-old, all the fifteen-year-old thinks about is himself. Like I say, a perfect room for a teenage boy or girl is mirrors everywhere. And there's a speaker system. So not only do they see themselves only, but they hear themselves only. That would be the perfect environment for them. Because they are aware. They have self-awareness. They believe the entire universe revolves around who they are. Ask any of them. All you have to do is whisper off to the side. What will a teenage girl yell at you? Are you talking about me? It's what they will do. It's perfect. They have self-awareness. They are walking laboratories of self-awareness. You also have self-awareness. We, I, have self-awareness. This is what subjectivity, subjectivity means. Not only is our mind aware of meaning, but it is aware of itself. It's called qualia. Okay? Self-awareness. Self-reflectiveness. Reflection about self. Human consciousness knows that it knows and knows that it knows about itself. Does that make sense? We repeat it. Human consciousness knows that it knows, and knows that it knows about itself. This is called knowing about knowing. Because you know, and you know that you know. And, they, and you know that you know that you know about yourself. Knowing about knowing. Subjectivity. Thus the obvious question again, to pound it in as best I can. 
is subjectivity or self-awareness or knowing about knowing or knowing that you know, is that reducible to a physical process? Physicalism. Is subjectivity reducible to physical processes? Or the next obvious question, how do you know about, your, about yourself? How do you know you exist? Now you understand Rene Descartes, right? Why it's called Cartesian. I think, therefore I am, right? That's what he said. And that has been called Cartesian dualism ever since. Is self-awareness reducible to a physical process? If it is not then the mind must consist of a non-physical entity because it's the mind that knows. If I can't reduce the mind to a physical process, then the mind must not be physical. It, the mind then is it an entity that understands, it's an entity that interprets, it's an entity that discerns, uh, it's an entity that uh, recognizes meaning, it's an entity that expresses joy and love and sadness, it's an entity that, that has hope among its thoughts and its concepts. And this entity cannot be reduced to a physical response or a physical uh, reaction or a physical component. This entity works in concert with the physical brain and the body. It, it's cooperative. It's interactive. It is dualistically functioning with the physical brain and body. So I have two entities in a human being. I will draw the human being. Isn't he very attractive? Okay, he is holding... This beautiful can of soda, we'll take it from there. He has a brilliant expression, but his nose is not nearly that big, so let's fix that. Okay, that didn't quite fix it. Okay. There's my human being. And I didn't draw his brain quite big enough. Let me do that. Fix that. You immediately recognize that is funny. How did you know it was funny? And inside that brain, I have two entities. I have the brain and I have the mental or the self-awareness or the subjectivity component. I have the component that is irreducible, the component that is not physical. And those two, the physical and the non-physical, are interacting together in such a way that you can't tell where one starts and one ends. By the way, I said last week that if you have the emergent position, that the mind emerges from the body, that you are from the brain, in other words, the brain is the source of the mind. In other words, the mind comes out of the brain. As the brain develops, then you have to answer the question, how is it that the mind, which is a component then, is emergent out of the brain, how is it that the mind then does what? Takes over. The mind ends up with the mind of its own, right? Thank you for laughing at the same joke two weeks in a row. That may... That makes you eligible for all kinds of things here. A buffet ticket, you know. Okay. So, the entity that is the mind works with the entity that is the physical brain body cooperatively. Interactive. It's called interactionism. And because it cannot be reduced to a physical structure... The mind has no weight, no mass, no location. Where is your mind located? Where's your thought? Find your thought, put it in a bottle, bring it to me. How do I, where is it? Where does it go? So it has no weight, it has no mass, it has no location, it has no volume. I know minds do not have location. How do I know that? Because none of them are here now. Not one of them. I can look around. 
Okay? I know your minds are elsewhere, right? I got that. I've taught high school a long, long time. Not once did I have a mind in the room. You can imagine teaching this to high school kids. Did I do it? Oh, yeah, it was great fun. You should have heard the parents come in. To, I really enjoy it because Eric is now teaching where I used to teach, and he's the new Mr. Chronister, and he has to go through parent-teacher conferences. Did you imagine my parent-teacher conferences? The parents would come in, and I would say, well, your son is having a lot of trouble with the concept of irreducibility. He doesn't understand it, and it's a fairly simple concept. Here, I'll explain it to you so you can teach it to them. <laughs> and they would look at me like, you, you must be kidding. I said, no. I, I believe it is very, absolutely I believe this. Do I think a 15-year-old can understand intentionality, intelligibility, irreducibility, and subjectivity? Do I think that's possible? Yes, I'm proving it. I'm making him sit through it right now. And I did it over and over and over again. Because why? He has to know, you have to know, we all have to know that you have a soul that does not die when your body dies. That's critical to know. You are not your body, you are your mind. Because the mind cannot be reduced to a physical structure, the entity of the mind, no weight, no mass, no location, no volume, then it is impossible for it to be emergent. That's a very important word, emergent. I'll put it down here as E. It is impossible for the mind, if it cannot be reduced physically, to be emergent from a physical structure or dependent upon a physical structure. And that's Chronister's first law. Emergent, emergentism cannot be true. That is a physicalist position and it is easily defeated. And if it is if the mind does not emerge and is not part or dependent of, it, it didn't come from a physical structure, then it's not subject to physical dissolvement because your body will dissolve. Now, some of us that make the body dissolve with cremation, completely destroying the body, if you will, physically. And, there, and the mind, however, cannot be destroyed because it has no physical component. And so it is not subject to physical dissolvement, to physical death. The soul will survive death. Okay. What am I doing? What am I still doing, by the way, with this interlude series between Romans 4 and James 2? Why am I subjecting this to you again? Why am I continuing to prove the existence of your mortal soul? I've asked this question four or five times tonight. Why am I going to do it for the next couple of weeks? Why? What's my purpose? Yeah, so you can witness the truth to other person and people, and so you won't destroy yourself with narcissism or hedonism. As God defines destroy, by the way, Revelation 3.15, if you ever want to see God's definition of the words destroy, what he means by destroy, Revelation 3.15. It isn't physical destruction, is it? It's spiritual destruction. I don't want you to destroy yourself with narcissism or hedonism. If all you're doing is thinking about yourself... If you think it is only about you, you should wonder how it is that you have the capacity to have self-awareness, but you shouldn't focus on yourself because that becomes narcissism. That becomes then hedonism and accountability is coming. And the old question, where is the fear of God? If you have a non-physical soul, 
then you have to ask, where does it come from? And then where is it going? Ecclesiastes, as I brought up a few weeks ago, tells you where the soul is going. Where is your soul going, going upon physical death? It's going back. Where? To the one who creates the soul. How does he create the soul? What does he use as raw material to make your soul? He has to have raw material. What is it? What is a soul made out of? There's only one answer to that. You'll figure it out yourself. Anyway, hedonists or hedonism, that's the ultimate result of selfish thinking. Hedonism is selfishness gone nuclear. Hedonisms, uh, hedonists were the first philosophers uh, that uh, posited, that produced an, a, as a theory physicalism or monism. Hedonists were the ones that wanted monism to be true or physicalism to be true. How come hedonists wanted physicalism to be true? What was their agenda? So they could destroy themselves without any accountability. If there is no judgment, if there is no survivability of the soul from the physical death, then there is no judgment. And if, if there is no judgment, then I can destroy myself and as many people as I want. The implications of physicalism are amazingly evil. And we're going to explore that later on, next week and the week after probably. Okay, shifting gears from terminology for now. This is where the sigh of relief comes. Will there be a test? Will you have to explain intentionality, intelligibility, subjectivity, emergentism, irreducibility, physicalism, altruism, substance dualism? Will there be a test? I sure hope so. But for now, I'm going to stop this, the terminology. It's also called stopping the drooling bleeding. Is in the Cliffside Community Chapel, we don't just have drooling, we have drooling bleeding. We hand out Kleenex. You know, churches hand out Kleenex because why? Is it going to make you cry? I hand out Kleenex here because of nosebleeds and eye bleeding. People cry here, all right, but not from emotion, from mental anguish. And my favorite statement was a young man that used to scream at his mother during the lectures, make him stop. That was great. I love that kid. I, I hope he's enjoying prison. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what we should do as a respite from the necessary is to revisit uh, a little bit from last Sunday, the arguments from the physicalists and the monists, because they're fond of declaring things as true. Um, they say this a lot. They say the dualist cannot explain the fact that the condition of the physical brain is critical. Or is to, um, in other words, the dualist cannot explain that the, the condition of the physical brain um, is critical to respect to the quality of mental events. It's predominant with respect to the quality of mental events. In other words, my skill, my aptitude, my memory, my processing, my attention, um, my logic and reasoning, my personality, they will say dualists can't explain the fact that all of that is subject to um, my physical brain condition. If I have a brain injury or a brain disease, that will severely impact my mental expression, and therefore the physical brain is the source of the mind, is what they will say. Okay, that's again called emergentism. And last week I talked about the fact uh, that uh, if I have a guitar, and I do have a guitar, and my guitar is broken, that does not affect my musicianship, that affects my musical expression. I still have the same musicianship. We'll get into that in a minute. But that's one of the things they say. We covered that a little bit last week. As you know, they'll say, number two, that dualism violates the law of conservation of energy. 
That's why I brought it up today, and next week we'll get into that. They'll say that uh, dualism doesn't explain how the mind interacts with the body, with the brain. I'm sorry. Uh, dualism doesn't explain how the mind interacts with the brain. It's called causation. And they say that it's faith-based. Based. Dualism is faith-based. That's absolutely true, by the way. And they say that it's not science. And I'll say back to them that science is faith-based as well. But uh, we'll get into that next week. They'll say that dualism gives up. That it just says God does it and, they, and we wallow in faith. And no, we don't. But well, again, next week and the week following, we'll get into that. Dualism, they'll, they'll say, cannot explain the origin of the soul. I disagree, which is obvious, I think, today. And then number five, they'll say dualism cannot explain the numerical differentiation uh, of spiritual objects. In other words, how do I differentiate spiritual objects if they're non-physical? So uh, of these, the ones that are the most popular from the proponents of physicalism, which, by the way, is purposelessness. They say there is it, that the whole world is purposeless. It is all random. There's no purpose to it. Uh, all, it, all there is is some kind of physical um, physical capability. You have no will, and then you die. But the ones that occur the most are number one, number two, and number three. The physical brain being number one. And I addressed uh, number one somewhat last week. You may remember, as I said, that the physical means of expression, the piano or the trumpet, if that is rendered defective, or the data receiving system is inoperable, my touch, my sight, my hearing, my taste, my smell, that's inoperable for whatever reason, disease or brain injury. That's certainly not evidence that uh, I am no longer a musician. The emotion of music, the expression of music are independent of the instrument's physical condition. And again, I'll do more of that next week in case that baffles you. It should not. And I also said Chronister's second law of the continuity of soul uh, last week, and I got wonderful responses on that as well. And that's where I want to go just before we end today. If there is no continuity of the soul, if your soul does not survive physical death, then there is no resurrection. If the soul is annihilated at the dissolvement of the body, as some teach, and resurrection then is merely a cloning process. In other words, you have dissolved. Not only has the physical property dissolved, but the mental property has also dissolved, and you have, you're gone, and you have ceased to exist. And then a new Steve is born. Looks exactly the same as the old Steve. Have to fix the nose again. Okay? It's a new Steve. Has a Coke can. Everything's the same. If resurrection is just a cloning process, and then I artificially implant the memories, so I have saved the memories over here in some storage system, and I implant the memories back in. An artificial implanting of memories, then Chronister's uh, law says that's not a true resurrection and is, in fact, it's worthless. And I was talking to Misty and Blue last week. For example, if I told you and Seth, I told you that your beloved dog or cat or whatever beloved pet you have ceased to exist at death, the body dissolved and the soul was extinguished, but, but sometime in the future, I would make a copy of the physical body of your beloved dog, and I would artificially implant the memories of the beloved dog into a new physical body. Let me ask the obvious question. 
Is that the same dog? It's obviously not the same dog. Now replace dog with what? Child. Your child's dead. I have the funeral. I stand up and say, don't worry. Your child has been extinguished and has ceased to exist. But sometime in the future, I'm going to make a new child. And I'm going to implant those memories into that child. Are you consoled by that? Is that resurrection? Is that the blessed hope? Is that taught in thousands of churches today? Yes, that's taught in thousands of churches today. What makes the person the same person? So you have to answer that question. It isn't the memories, is it? What makes you the same person? Is it your memories? Because if it's memories, how much trouble am I in? I've, you know, listen, I don't know half of you already. It's only been a half hour. See, that was kind of a joke. Has it really been a half hour? Do you know, I tell people all the time, my family, my beautiful wife says to me, you, you are faking this dementia so good now, we're not going to know the difference. Which is precisely my plan. <laughs> what makes the person the same? I'm going to submit to you that it is knowing about knowing. Knowing about knowing makes the person the same. You know about knowing that you know. Would God, by the way, is it in the character of God to make a new copy of the original? Is that God? How infinite is he? Remember Psalm 139, 14, 18, where we started. We are absolutely unique. There is none like us. Why did he do it that way? How does he make sure we stay that way? How does he make sure we stay that way? Continuity of the soul. That's how he does it. Evidence that the soul survives physical death. That's how he does it. See you next week. Same horrible discussion as this week. Same drooling, drooling, bleeding, bleeding, repeat. Until when? Until I'm tired of beating you. When will that be? Hasn't happened yet, baby. So we'll keep on rolling. Let's rise and beat us.